Well, this morning we're continuing our look at at the series that we've been looking at over the course of the summer here, this idea of why not you, where we are really wrestling with what it means to stop talking ourselves out of the dreams and the desires and the calling that God has placed on our life. And I don't know if you've noticed as you're working your way through Scripture, but there's a lot of things in Scripture related to the calling of God. There's a lot of things in Scripture related to the desire that He has for your life and my life, particularly as He rescues and redeems us. And so when the Lord rescues you and the Lord rescues me, He doesn't just rescue us and then say, all right, stand still and observe. He equips us, He calls us, and He puts us in a spot where we actually have the opportunity to use the gifts that He's given to us. But what I've noticed over the course of of my adult life is that I can be pretty good at talking myself out of doing certain things, even things that the Lord has called me to do. And you could probably get really good at talking yourself out of, of doing the things that the Lord's called you to do. And I think sometimes believers have a habit of doing that. It's almost like we doubt the fact that the Holy Spirit could empower someone like us. We always think it's somebody else. We always think that it's somebody with more glamour or with more status or with with more natural abilities. And one of the amazing things about spiritual gifts is the fact that they are not dependent on natural abilities. The Lord equips us to do things that are beyond our natural capacity to do. So again, as we wrestle with this thought, why not you? Well, why can't it be you? Look at who the, who the Lord's used throughout Scripture to accomplish the things that He's used. And I don't see why it can't be you and me to do those things in the generation He's allowed us to live. And so this morning, we're going to be talking about this idea of affirmation and gratification and how they go together. And we're going to look at two sections of Scripture. And so as I read these in a moment, if you're following along in your, in, in your Bible, just keep a hand in both sections, because we're actually going to kind of go back and forth referring to both sections. But today we're going to talk about this idea of delaying the need for affirmation and delaying the need for gratification and how this actually works with accomplishing the calling or fulfilling the calling that the Lord's placed upon our lives. We're going to start this morning in Matthew chapter 25, looking at verses 20 and 21, and then I'm going to jump us right to Genesis 29 looking at verses 15 to 20, and I'm going to try and explain this morning how I think these two verses, or these two sections of verses complement each other in regard to this idea of delaying the need for affirmation and gratification as we respond to God's calling on our life. So let me start with us, uh, for us, in Matthew chapter 25, beginning with verse 20. This is what it says. And he who had received the five talents came forward bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Now we'll go all the way back to the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, And in Genesis 29, starting with verse 15, it says this, Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now, Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel, and he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. 
Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the opportunity to be able to look at these complementary portions of Scripture this morning. And Lord, we're grateful for the fact that you, you do have a calling on our lives. As we know you through your Son, Jesus Christ, and as we have experienced the liberty and the freedom that, that we are granted through your Son, we have the privilege to walk with you, Father. We have the privilege to go through life knowing that you have your hand on our life, and knowing that you are, you're ordaining circumstances and people that you bring into our lives and, and the timing of all sorts of things. And you're doing this all with the greater purpose of building your kingdom and allowing us to be part of your overall plan. So we thank you for that. But Lord, sometimes we have this thought in our mind that, that we're to be affirmed immediately in the process and that we're to be experiencing immediate rewards from the type of things that we're doing. But that doesn't seem to be the pattern that we see in your word. So Lord, we pray as we look at these portions of scripture today that you'd help us to understand what it looks like to delay affirmation and delay our desire for gratification so that we could ultimately spend our time giving you the glory that ultimately you deserve. And we just thank you, Lord, for this privilege now. We pray that you'd speak to our minds and our hearts, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So I don't remember everything I thought about pastoral ministry before I actually became a pastor, but I can definitely say some of my expectations were dead wrong. I was completely wrong about a variety of things, and that was made very clear to me the second I accepted the invitation to lead my first church. That experience was, was very much like, um, sometimes I have referred to it as pastor boot camp, if there could be such a thing. I, I learned a lot through that experience. But during the years prior to that, uh, I was serving as the youth director of a, of a church not too far from here, in fact, uh, and I was doing that while I was finishing up my degrees. And during that season, prior to accepting my first call as a, as a lead pastor, what I did was I was accepting every invitation that was given to me to come as a guest speaker for other churches. And the reason I was doing that was, first of all, I just enjoyed having the opportunity. I felt like it was something the Lord was calling me to do. But I also knew that the only way I was going to improve in my sermon preparation and then also in my sermon delivery was by getting as much practice as I could. Now, some people might question if maybe I need to practice a little bit more. I'm still practicing. I think maybe by the time I hit my eighth decade, I might get it right sometime about then. But my thought was, anytime I was given an invitation... I was going to take it, no matter where it was, and so I would do that. I remember one particular summer, uh, it was in the month of August, and there were five Sundays in that month, and I was, all, I was happy because in those five Sundays, I was speaking at four different churches, and I thought, wow, all right, this is starting to come together. I'm getting lots of good practice, and so uh, many of the places that I, I, I visit as, as, as a guest speaker, they would give me encouraging feedback. I would receive encouraging feedback afterward, and maybe they were just being polite, or maybe they were trying to be helpful to this young guy who was trying to get started in his, his pastoral work, but I, I grew used to receiving encouraging feedback in those contexts, and I actually expected the same when I started pastoring my first church, but that's not what I got. <laughs> uh, in fact, for the first six months and that's no exaggeration. It was literally a six-month stretch of time. My first six months 
as a full-time lead pastor, I did not receive a single encouraging word. Nothing. And it was to the point where it was starting to, to, to feel very, very strange. I was serving at a church, to give you a little more context, I was serving at a church that had just gone through a season of major conflict about two months before I had arrived. And when I look back at that, I actually think that they were, it was just taking them a, a little bit of time to heal. You can't really expect a group of people that have gone through some major conflict only eight weeks before you show up to all of a sudden being, a, being at a spot where people are, are truly healed. So they, they weren't really healed yet. They weren't really in the mood to encourage me while their feelings were a little bit tender. So I can see that from the perspective that I'm at right now, but being fresh out of college and serving in my first church and used to receiving you know an encouraging word now and then to go six months, I remember getting to a point where I thought, this is, this is legitimately getting depressing. I think these people hate me. That, that was my thought all the time. I think they hate me. It was very hard because I felt unwelcomed. I felt unappreciated. I felt unloved. And I didn't understand that I was really kind of caught up in something that didn't have a whole lot to do with me. But that was the experience that I went through. And when I look back at that season now, my perspective on it is very different than it was at the time. When I look back at that season now, I'm actually extremely grateful for it really grateful for it. It just shows the sovereign hand of God and how he knows what you need to prepare you to do what he's called you to do. Because I learned through that experience what it feels like to remain faithful to a task that he entrusted to me, regardless of how I felt. And I honestly felt terrible. I felt very discouraged. I was very new at that. And so I felt discouraged, but I I thought, you know, I got to stay faithful to this. This is what he's called me to do. I didn't know it was going to be this hard, but this is what it's like. This is, this is what I'm experiencing. And I also believe the Lord was doing me another favor. And the other favor that I thought he was, I think he was doing, and I, I really believe this, is that if not receiving verbal encouragement would have prevented me from preaching, then I didn't really belong in the pulpit in the first place. And what I mean by that is this. The pulpit is a spot for giving Christ praise. It's not a spot for you to try and stand in to get praise for yourself. And that was a lesson that I think I needed to learn in that experience. I don't think I was necessarily trying to get praise for myself, but it was through that that drought of any sort of affirmation from that congregation that the Lord made it clear to me. It's like, listen, you got to get it straight in your head now. This is not a place you serve. This is not a context you serve. If you have the privilege to stand behind what some people call the sacred desk, Right? If you have the privilege to stand behind a pulpit, don't do so trying to garnish praise for yourself. This is a, a place to, to give praise to Christ. And so that experience was something the Lord was giving me as a way to get that all straight in my head right at the start. It's like, get this straight now. Don't wait till you're 10 years or 20 years into this. Get this straight now. And I think a lot of times when it comes to this idea of answering our calling, or sticking with what we've been called to do. I think a lot of people struggle with a willingness to do that because sometimes we're maybe expecting an immediate pat on the back from what we're doing. And I think sometimes, too, we're also expecting to see the fruit that typically takes years to produce. Sometimes we're expecting to see that too soon. And because we don't see it right away, I think sometimes people give up on things a little too soon because they don't get that affirmation or they don't get that gratification 
right away. And so I just want to throw this out there to us. If you struggle with the same sorts of things that I struggle with and have to learn this, the kind of lessons that, that the Lord uh, feels the need to teach me, I'm just kind of wondering, you know, what about you? What about us as a group? Is this the type of thing that we wrestle with collectively? And I'll also ask this, because it's a question that I need to ask myself frequently too. Are you willing to delay your desire for affirmation and gratification in order to give time for your calling to develop and the efforts uh, that you put into that opportunity to mature? Can you give it time? Can you give it time to allow the Lord to do the work that he's trying to do? I like the things that were given in the scriptures that we just looked at, because there's a variety of helpful things that I think help us get this all clear in our mind and clear in our thinking. But one of the things that, it, that I see, you know, particularly when we go back to Matthew 25, so we're going to be in Matthew 25, we're going to jump again to, to, to Genesis 29, then we're going to jump right back to Matthew 25 before we finish up today. But for starters, I think Scripture makes it abundantly clear that we're supposed to do our work for a person and a purpose, not for praise. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, let me reread Matthew 25, 20, because there it says this, and he who had received the five talents came forward bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I made five talents more. Let's pause there and just think about this, because this is in a context where Jesus is telling a parable. Jesus was a master storyteller, and when you look at the parables that he shares, he conveys stories that are immensely insightful and immensely helpful And he does that all throughout the course of the Gospels. And here in Matthew 25, you have Jesus telling a parable about a property owner who was going on a journey. And as this property owner goes on this journey, as he's doing so, he entrusts portions of money to various servants before he left. And he gave five talents, the Scripture tells us, to one servant, and that servant was supposed to be a wise steward of those, those five talents while, while the, the, the property owner was away. And then there were two talents that, was given to, that were given to another servant, and then there was one talent that was given to a third servant, and the Scripture reveals that these were given according to their stewardship abilities. It was appropriate to give the one five, to give the one two, to give the other one one. Two servants were faithful with their task. And they ended up doubling the money that was entrusted to them, but one servant did nothing with it. He was given that one talent, and he did nothing with the talent. He he, he treated it like, you know what, this just needs to be guarded but not used, observed but not utilized. And so he had nothing productive to show when the property owner returned. Now, when I read that parable, there's a variety of things that stick out to me. And maybe some of these stood out to you as well. But here I see examples of people who were motivated by different things. There are different things that are motivating their thinking and their actions. Two of them were servants that were motivated by faith and faithfulness, right? The fruit of faith. They're motivated by faith. They're motivated by being faithful, while the other servant seemed paralyzed by fear and doubt. So when I look at something like that, I think, okay, the Lord's trying to give us insight into our own motivations, and it makes me ask questions like, all right, well, what motivates you? What keeps you pressing forward with the mission that's been entrusted to you? What's motivating you? You know, I look at a portion of Scripture like this, and it makes me ask those questions. And I believe that as followers of Jesus Christ, that we should be motivated by something deeper than the approval of our peers. However, that tends to be the primary thing that motivates a lot of people on this earth. Most people spend their entire lives making decisions that aren't based on convictions, but whether or not they will receive praise 
for the decisions they make. And I see that frequently happening. I, 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 see, I see people squelching their conviction in order to receive praise. But I think we need to aim higher than that, especially as we try to answer God's calling on our lives. As you try and discern what Christ has called you to do, I think our calling is much deeper than the approval of our peers. And here, the servants in Christ's parable demonstrate what it looks like to work for a person and a purpose, not for praise. And what I mean by that is this, there's something powerful we can learn from their example, because the person we're called to glorify is Jesus. And the purpose we're called to join him in is the growth of his kingdom. So we glorify Jesus, and we join him in the growth of his kingdom. That's the person and the purpose that we're to be focused on. But if our greatest motive is the praise of men, what's going to happen is we'll quickly lose sight of the, the person and the purpose that we've been called to honor. And we don't want to go in that direction because it's unhealthy and unwise, and really it's a waste of your life. Because how long does fleeting praise from our peers last? A moment. So why live your life for something that doesn't have any eternal consequence? And I think it's kind of cool when you look through Scripture and you can see how God works through people's lives progressively. Could you tell progressively all throughout the course of your life that the Lord's been gradually teaching you things and helping you to grow in a variety of areas? Isn't it interesting to watch Him do that over the course of your life? I'm really grateful for that, that growth in sanctification that we have the opportunity to experience. But there's another example, we read it just a moment ago, so I'll reread it in a moment. But uh, uh, there's an example of long-term thinking that we see in Genesis chapter 29 that I want to highlight because I think it it gives us a great example of what it looks like to delay affirmation or delay our desire for gratification. And it's the example we read a few moments ago that I'll reread of uh, Jacob and Rachel. And it's just shared with us there in Genesis. And one of the things, one of the principles that I'll even say before I reread a portion of this that that I notice when I look at something like this is the fact that it's good to have something to look forward to. I like having something to look forward to. I'm sure you guys like having something to look forward Who doesn't like having something to look forward to, right? And when you look at what Jacob was willing to endure here, you could tell that he liked having something to look forward to as well in his context, someone to look forward to. But here it says this in Genesis chapter 29, starting with verse 15, it says, Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now, Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel, and he said, I will serve you seven years. Did you catch that earlier? He said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So that's what that scripture tells us there. Now, let me say this even before we dig into some of the details of that. I am convinced that the quality of of my life improves when I have something to look forward to. I like having something to look forward to. In fact, I think one of the reasons the Lord's given us prophetic portions of the Bible is because we're probably, I think we're wired to have something to look forward to. I think he's trying to help us Keep that perspective, even in the midst of the challenges and some of the trials and some of the persecution that Christians have gone through throughout the centuries. 
He wants us to know there's something better up ahead. There's something to look forward to. So I think it's good to have something to look forward to in the spiritual sense. I also think it's good to have something to look forward to in the physical realm as well. But my overall sense of optimism is fed daily by the hope that I have in Jesus Christ. And so I'm confident in the fact that he is going to work all things out together in my life for for his glory and for my good. And I'm grateful that that's the perspective he's allowed me to have, that he's allowed us as believers to have. That makes a difference in our quality of life. And I'll also tell you in in, you know, with respect to that, I also like to add things to my calendar on purpose that provide a touch point somewhere along the way that give me things like benchmarks along the way over the course of my life that are things to look forward to. I purposely sneak them into my calendar. I, I purposely put them into my schedule so that I have a little something along the way to look forward to. So sometimes the additions to my calendar are as simple as buying concert tickets and looking forward to a good show. A couple months ago, I bought concert tickets for my wife and I to go see Michael W. Smith. I don't know if you listen to Michael W. Smith, but I found out he was going to be in Lancaster, and it's been a long time since I've been at an in-person concert, and I've been missing them. And so when I found out he was going to be nearby, I thought, well, I want to go to that. Let me see if, if Andrea wants to go. And, and I said, hey, you want to go to see a Michael W. Smith concert in July? And she said, uh, yeah. And I was like, okay, so I guess I'm just going to buy tickets. It's on a Thursday night. That, I think that works, doesn't it? She's like, yeah, totally. So I've had those tickets for like two months. And for two months, I've had in my mind, all right, when July comes, we're going to Lancaster, and we're going to go see Michael W. Smith. July comes, going to be, like, I like looking forward to little things like that. And I know it's not the biggest deal in the world, but it's nice. Other times, some of those purposeful additions that I've added to my schedule are kind of long-term goals. So for a bunch of years, one of the, we had a couple long-term financial goals. We wanted to pay off our house. And then the reward that I was going to allow myself to have. So before, let me give you a backstory on this. Some of you have seen that reward hanging out in the church parking lot. <laughs> Need to give a little explanation on that. I actually really wondered whether or not I should even buy this thing, but I was like, no, I'm, I'm just going to do it. Um, 14 years ago, I had a 1990 bright red Mazda Miata. And it's a pretty small car. I always joke with Andrea that she could wear a watch or a bracelet when she rides with me, but there's not room for her to wear both. So you got to pick, right? There's no room in it, but it's so fun. And 14 years ago, I sold my old Miata. I sold it. I said to her, I was like, you know what? We have debt, and I just don't feel right having an extra car while we're trying to pay off debt. And I said, I don't know how long it's going to take us to clear off our debt and pay off our house and and all of that, but when we pay that all off, I want to buy another Miata someday. I didn't know how long it was going to take. Well, here's the thing. It took 14 years, 14 years to pay off the house, but then I needed to save up the money to buy the Miata too because I was like, I'm not going to get us out of debt and then take on more debt immediately afterward and say, here's your reward for clearing up your debt. New debt, you know? So then I had to save up the money to buy the car, and then I found one. I finally found it. It's three years old, but it's still the same body style as the new one. And I was like, I found it. But I was thinking I was going to get a charcoal color one because it doesn't stand out quite as much. And I was like, but the one I found is really bright red. And I was like, do you think I should get that? And she's like, I think you should get it. I think you'd like that. Your old one was red. And I was like, I don't know. Is it appropriate for a pastor to drive a bright red sports car? I was like, it's not like a really expensive sports car, but should I 
like, and I was like, you know what, let me put a little feeler out on Facebook and see what people actually say. And I was like, hey, everybody, sometimes I do this stuff on purpose. Please forgive me for doing that. But I didn't want to buy a bright red sports car and then find that I lived on the street. You know what I mean? So, so I, put, I put this out there. I was like, hey, I, I, I found this, but it's bright red. What do you guys think about that? And I just kind of waited and monitored the comments. And it cracked me up how many people from the church were like, oh, totally get the red one. Get the red one. And I'm watching. I was like, well, they go to the church. They, I was like, Think I'm buying the red one. You know, no one seems terribly opposed. And if they are, they're not saying anything. Now's your moment. Speak up. Nope. All right. They're not opposed. I have wasted so much. I'm sorry if you're an environmentalist, but I've wasted so much gas over the past few weeks because I take the long way everywhere. Everywhere. I take the long way everywhere. Sometimes Andrea will be like, when are you coming home? I'll be like, I don't know. I'm just driving around. She's like, where are you going? I was like, don't know yet. Just going like places. And she's like, that's so fun. And, uh, but, you know, like as little as that is, I realize I don't get to take that thing to heaven with me and I'm going to use it up pretty quickly if I keep driving like I've been driving. But it's nice to have like a little thing. That was in my mind for 14 years. I thought that's going to be kind of the reward when I clear this stuff up. I'm going, I'm getting another one someday. So I would think about it and it's still weird to me that it's here because it was a long-term goal. And I don't know, I'm assuming I'm not the only one that does stuff like this, where you kind of put a little thing out there and you're like, all right, if you achieve it, it's like, if I lose five pounds this month, I can get a banana Sunday, you know, a banana split at the, uh, at, at uh, Dairy Delight, right? You know, do you put something out there? That might be a self-sabotaging goal. That might not actually help. But I'll tell you what, one of the biggest long-term delayed gratification type of things in my life that I, I thought about for a long time before it was able to happen, was actually the opportunity to marry Andrea. Because we, thank you for that awe. So I don't know who did it, but I heard it. I heard that. I want to affirm that right away. That was very gratifying. So was that you, Margie? Thumbs up. But we started dating my freshman year of college. Toward the end of my freshman year of college, we started dating and it was pretty clear to us that we were going to get married. And, um, and I started doing the math. I'm like, I'm a freshman. I don't want to get married while we're still in college. I want to actually be able to support a family, support our household. So, you know, we talked about it, and uh, it's like, all right, you know, I mean, this is like a three-year, and it was like three years and two months from when we started dating before it really made sense for us to get married. And so, and half the year, I used to joke with her that I had to marry her just so I could see her because half the year, she lived seven hours from where I live. We went to college together, but you're only on campus for half the year. And then the other half the year, she was kind of far away. So I used to joke. I was like, yeah, I got to marry you just so I could see you again. I, I missed her. So it was a longer wait, but it was absolutely worth it, especially because she doesn't mind one bit that I bought that red car. <laughs> And in Genesis 29, we're told here the story of the union between Jacob and Rachel. And it's cool because the Lord had a plan for their lives that was going to impact humanity as a whole in drastic ways. You know, when you look at how the story develops and how time goes on. But it's so fun to go back and see how their marriage actually began. So in return for permission to marry Rachel... Jacob agreed to work for her father, Laban, for a full seven years. So would you have agreed to that kind of an arrangement? That's 
pretty deep level commitment, you know, to say, all right, I'm going to work for you for seven years. I'm going to give you seven years of my life as your employee just for the privilege to be able to marry your daughter. But that's what they agreed to. Scripture makes it very clear that Jacob was completely smitten with Rachel. And keep in mind at the time that Jacob is the one through whom the nation of Israel was to come. You know, the Lord later changed his name to Israel, and through his marriage to Rachel, to, you know, couple, you have the, the tribe of, uh, well, you have the, the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh that come from Joseph, and then you have the tribe of Benjamin. So Rachel's children were, were, were Joseph and Benjamin. So you have multiple tribes of, of the nation of Israel that are going to come from this union. And you look at this and you realize, all right, this was a foreordained relationship. And Jacob was willing to endure many years of labor because he was looking forward to taking Rachel as his wife. And he said, you know, I'm going to do this. I'm going to fulfill this. I'm going to keep this commitment. Seven years, I'm in. I looked at something this week because I was actually curious. I actually looked at something from the Bureau of Labor Statistics. You ever look at something from the Bureau of... How boring can my life be? Uh, You know, just that I would look at something, but I wanted... I was looking for something specific, and I found it. I wanted to know the average length of time that the modern-day employee remains on a job. And I don't know if you have a guess, but I actually know the statistic because I looked it up. So thanks, Internet. That was useful. The average length of time that the modern employee remains on a job is 4.6 years, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics. That's the average, 4.6 years. And I thought that was interesting because I think in our day and age, I'm actually surprised that it's that high. I actually thought it might be a little bit lower than that because in our day and age, people change jobs two or three times uh, in the amount of time that, that uh, Jacob had agreed to work for Laban. And in, in seven years' time, I, you know, many of my friends have had multiple jobs in that, in that period of time. But here you have Jacob saying, no, I'm going to commit to this seven-year period of time. And the interesting thing, when you look at what Scripture tells us, he did not quit. He didn't quit, right? He stayed faithful to it and uh, even added some more time to it, if you look at what Scripture says, if you get into the remaining details. But he was looking forward to... The, the, the prize of being able to marry Rachel. And he's looking forward to this. And neither hard labor nor an ungrateful employer, which we see as the story develops, both end up being the case, neither of those thing could, things could rob him of his optimism and the focus that he had on completing the mission that was right in front of him. And so I just, I'm just curious, what are you looking forward to? It's good to have something to look forward to. What are you looking forward to? Can you see the outcome by faith even before you can see it with your eyes? I think those whose faith matures over time, we begin to see things by faith before we actually see it with our eyes. And Jacob demonstrates what that looks like. And I think that you and I, as followers of Jesus Christ, have the opportunity to demonstrate what that looks like as well, as we remain faithful in the calling that the Lord's given us to remain faithful in and listen to him. If he tells you to pivot something, by all means, pivot, make the change, do whatever you need to do, but listen to his voice and be obedient in the leading that he gives to you. But here's the other aspect of this. A sense of mission actually makes your labors seem lighter. You have a sense of mission. If there's purpose behind what you're doing, if you could see the purpose, the greater purpose, it will actually make your labor seem lighter. Look at verse 20 of Genesis 29, because there it says this, So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. And this is where I cue Margie, who says, Aw, right? Aw, thank you, Margie, for Jacob. This is Jacob's aw. Thank you for giving me one, too. 
But he served for seven years for Rachel, and the Scripture says they seem to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. How sweet. How syrupy and sweet, right? But when my sense of mission is clear, I'll have to tell you what. The tasks I'm working on feel very different. When my sense of mission is clear, the tasks I'm working on feel very different. I find that I am willing to put up with long, unglamorous hours of doing unglamorous or unglorious things. Is unglorious a word or is it inglorious? Someone tell me later. But as long as I'm motivated by the mission, I'm willing to do both unglorious and inglorious things. The idea being, if there's something deeper level motivating you, you'll find yourself looking at difficult things and they'll seem a bit lighter. I think about this every time it's, it's summer, because for a season of time, for a group of years, the Lord gave my wife and I the opportunity to lead a summer camp and conference center. And that was a difficult job. That was, I would say, the hardest thing that we've ever collectively tried to do uh, as a couple and as individuals. But I remember when the Lord impressed upon my heart to lead that camp. And there it was in the mountains, right? Beautiful setting, nice setting, but it's hard living. It wasn't an easy thing to do. So I remember thinking through that time and thinking through the labors that he gave me and he gave my wife to do. And I remember during that time, I was willing to, clean, to, to clear snow. I was willing to clean rooms. I was willing to unclog drains. I was willing to repair broken things. I was willing to dig holes. I can't even tell you how many holes we dug to try and find underground water pipes because the soil was so rocky and the rocky soil would shift and it would move and then it'd break a pipe underground and you wouldn't notice it right away. And then all of a sudden, there'd just be this wet spot on the ground, and you'd look at it, and you'd say, why is the ground wet there? It's not raining, and you realize, oh, now we've got to dig that up, because we've got a broken pipe underneath there. And, you, and even deal with, you know, when you're serving a whole bunch of people, and people come through there, you're dealing with all sorts of preferences and complaints, and you're trying to, to, to do all that stuff. But I knew without a shadow of a doubt that during that season of my life, that was the mission that the Lord had given me to do. And in that process, I also had the opportunity to see thousands of people come through that property and either grow in their walk with Jesus or meet Jesus for the first time. And so most of that time, even though I was doing work that I would say is probably very unceremoniously dirty and hard, the outcome made it worth it. And the years serving in that role actually passed quickly. And when you look at what Scripture tells us here about Jacob, tells us here again that Jacob served Laban for seven years. They only seemed like a few days to him because of his great love for Rachel. Seemed like just a few days. Seven years doesn't typically feel like a few days. What were you doing seven years ago? What were you doing in 2014? You probably have to think about it, right? Seven years is not a quick season, but it felt like just a few days because of his great love for Rachel. And not only is that statement romantic and heartwarming, but it's also a very clear picture of the nature of what it looks like when you commit yourself to the mission that the Lord entrusts to you. When you find yourself serving in that sweet spot, when you find yourself serving in the role that you've been called and designed to serve in, don't be surprised when it seems like the days are flying by because you're in that sweet spot of serving in the role that the Lord's called you to serve in and equipped you to serve in. And don't be, a, don't, don't be surprised when your work seems a little bit lighter and when the days seem to go by. Jacob certainly illustrates that in the context that he was in. But one other thing I want to point out to us this morning, and this takes us right back to Matthew 25, verse 21. 
And it's something that Jesus made clear to us through that portion of Scripture, through that example, and that's this. The reward that awaits you, it outshines your vanities. There's a reward that awaits you as you trust in Him, as you follow Him, as you serve Him, as He empowers you to serve Him. The reward that awaits you, it outshines your vanities. Look at what it says in Matthew 25, 21. Jesus, again, in this parable, He says it this way. He says, His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. And then I love this line where it says, Enter into the joy of your master. Isn't that a great statement? Enter into the joy of your master. Now, coming back to this initial parable that we started with this morning, I love the statement that the property owner makes here to the faithful servant. Because the property owner praised the quality of his work, and he also prayed, he praised his faithfulness. He's looking at this, he's like, the quality of what you've done, the faithfulness that you've demonstrated, it's all good. And he also makes it clear to this guy, he makes it clear to the servant that because he was faithful with little things, he could be entrusted with larger things as well, and that he would share in the joy of his master, as we just stated just a moment ago. And again, when I read a parable like this, I can't help but take an assessment of what the Lord has entrusted to me. And I want you, as we read this, to take an assessment of what the Lord has entrusted to you. So let's all do this together. Take an assessment of what the Lord has entrusted to us. So I look in my context, I think, all right, the Lord's allowed me to be a steward. He's entrusted to me a family. He's entrusted to me a ministry. He's entrusted to me certain abilities. And he's entrusted to me certain resources. And there's probably a few other categories I could think of if I took a little more time to kind of parcel it out. But the thing is, I need to make certain that I'm faithful with these things because there's going to come a day when I'm going to give an account of my life to Him. I'm going to give an account of my life to the Lord, and He's going to ask me about the things He entrusted to me. I think that's part of what Jesus is trying to help us see when we look at a parable like this. He's entrusted, those are the four main categories that I can see it as far as my life. He's given me a family, He's given me a ministry, He's given me abilities, and He's given me resources. And none of them belong to me. They actually belong to Him. So He's going to ask me, what do you do with my stuff and my people? What do you do with it? He's going to settle accounts with me one day. And He's going to assess the fruit of what I've done with what He's given me to oversee. It's all going to be evaluated. It's like what Scripture reveals to us in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I want to read this real quick. I don't know how well you could see this, so let me read this for us. 1 Corinthians 3, verses 11 to 15, it's talking about this idea of when we come before the Lord and He, he just assesses our whole life and what we've stewarded with what He entrusted to us. But it says this in 1 Corinthians 3, starting with verse 11, it says, "...for no one can lay any foundation other than the one we already have, Jesus Christ." Anyone who builds on that foundation may use a variety of materials, gold, silver, jewels, wood, hay, or straw. But on the judgment day, fire will reveal what kind of work each builder has done. The fire will show if a person's work has any value. If the work survives, that builder will receive a reward. But if the work is burned up, the builder will suffer great loss. The builder will be saved but like someone barely escaping through a wall of flames. And the analogy that's being given here is this idea that, all right, it's like what's going to, what, 
what of what you invested your life in will have had eternal consequence or eternal significance? I think about that all the time. And by the way, you don't have to have some sort of glamorous career for that to be the case, because keep in mind, our stewardship falls into a variety of realms. You have abilities. How are you using those abilities? You have a family. How are you stewarding your family? You have resources. How are you stewarding your resources? You don't have to be in some sort of hyper-visible spot doing some sort of hyper-visible task to be faithful with what the Lord's entrusted to you. Just be faithful with what he says, here is your stewardship to steward. And then he's going to assess it. And it's basically, he's saying, listen, your salvation is not based on your stewardship, right? My salvation is not based on whether or not I'm a good steward. I could be a terrible steward, but be saved. What the scripture is saying is that apparently the Lord has rewards and responsibilities in store for us in heaven that have a direct connection with our faithfulness now. Do you ever think about that? Sometimes I think we think that heaven is just going to be this place where we just float around on clouds wearing baby diapers and playing harps. Is that your view of heaven? Do you think that you've seen paintings where that's what people are doing in heaven? They're like, hey, I just, look, we all wear diapers here and play harps. This is great, I think. Thought we'd have more on than this, but okay. Right? That's not the picture of heaven that Scripture gives us. Scripture gives us a picture that's very much like what the Garden of Eden was like. What was the Garden of Eden like? Did Adam and Eve have responsibilities in the Garden of Eden? Were things entrusted to them? Yeah. Do you think you're going to work in eternity? Yeah. And you're going to like it. It's kind of like what Jacob said about the work that he was doing for Rachel. Felt like, felt like a minute because he understood the purpose and the mission. And there are rewards and there are responsibilities that Scripture makes it clear that the Lord will entrust to us even in eternity that have a direct connection to our stewardship right now. So if He's given you an ability, if He's given you a resource, if there are people you're responsible for, there's a ministry that's under your oversight, be faithful with whatever He puts under your care. Because the reward that awaits, it outshines our vanities. The stuff of this earth does not last, and we don't get to take it with us. But the reward that he has in store for us is something that outshines our earthly vanities. And when that day comes, the affirmation and the gratification that we've been delaying right now becomes our reality. The things that you were saying, all right, that's in the future. The affirmation's in the future. The well done is in the future. The gratification, the reward, that's in the future. The joys of the kingdom are going to become our eternal reality. That's what Scripture makes abundantly clear to us. So I'm counting on the day when Jesus is going to look at me and say, well done. And if that wasn't something that I was... That's the type of thing that sustains you in the midst of hard days when you're trying to serve the Lord and glorify His name, is it not? Does that not sustain you? I find that very sustaining. Knowing that He sees and that that well done is something that He... That's there right? That's there if we're faithful stewards with what he's entrusted us with. But in the meantime, as the fruit of genuine faith in Jesus Christ, let's just be faithful with whatever, just to the mission and the stewardship that he's entrusted to our care, whatever, whatever is within your power to oversee or steward, do so for Christ's glory. 
knowing that none of these things, whether it be responsibilities or people or resources or abilities, it doesn't belong to us. It's all on loan. The saddest people on this earth, in my opinion, are people who only live for immediate affirmation and gratification. I find that very sad. It's such a limited and unhealthy and unwise perspective. And there's so much that they're missing because their vantage point is so low and their outlook is too limited. But through Jesus Christ, Scripture shows us that in Jesus we're granted an eternal perspective. We can see things that our natural eyes typically are unable to see. We can see future things like they're here right now with us today. And so with that kind of future in mind, and the promises that Christ has assured us are absolutely on the way for you and for me, let's set our hearts toward completing the mission that he's given to us at present, knowing that that day of affirmation and gratification is ultimately coming for those who trust in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you so much for the privilege that it is to be able to look at a variety of scriptures together today. And Lord, as we look at these things and as we think about what you've revealed to us in your word, we recognize that so easy, or it's so easy for us at times to look at earthly things like these are the only things that are. We know, Lord, that there are are people in our lives, and, and we've even fallen into these categories, where we have at times lived for things that are so transient, instead of welcoming the eternal perspective that you grant us through your Son, as your Spirit opens our eyes and helps us to see things that naturally we were not seeing. So, Lord, thank you for changing our perspective. Thank you for making us willing to delay affirmation and gratification because we're thinking of it from an eternal perspective, and we're thinking about what's going to happen when we settle accounts before you. Lord, you've made us us stewards of so many things. As you've called us unto yourself, and you've given us the privilege to know you, and you empower us to walk by faith, you also entrust responsibilities and resources and people and ministries and all sorts of things to our oversight. And Lord, these are all things that don't belong to us. These are all things that belong to you. And so we pray that we would be stewards of these things for your glory and that we would have a sense of mission about us so that as we go through life, maybe we would even look over the course of our life and say, wow, that was quick. Because we were in that sweet spot of understanding your mission. And then working at it for your glory and not for the praise of men. Again, Lord, we're grateful for the scriptures we've looked at together this morning. We pray that these would be things that you would permeate our minds and our hearts with. And in the midst of difficult stretches and difficult seasons, that these would be the type of things that you bring back to our mind. We love you, Lord. We're grateful for your blessings. We're grateful for your presence with us today. And we commit ourselves to you now in Jesus' name. Amen.